Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Pelin keskin a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Dijon, a culture writer and critic. This week we're discussing To Leslie and Paul T. Goldman, a film and a series about two people trapped by their own demons. Whether or not one of them is willing is to admit that. that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> How have you been this week, Jenny? What's been on your mind? What's new? So the news in jenny land is like it's so funny doing this a week after your news pellin but i know i know <laughs> but the know. the layoff wave has has hit me too so the place where i work which i guess is is gawker gawker 2.0 was gawker 2.0 has been officially shut down you know without prior notice or anything but you know whatever uh and my former employer laid off like eight percent of the workforce including myself and everyone on my team so yeah i'm um i'm a free agent i have joined all my fellow unemployed yeah so we're both free agents uh any podcast producers podcast ceos listening to that uh take with that information what you will just saying (laughs) just a wink and a nod uh will do but i'm really i'm really sad that gawker is dead and i'm really sad that you're not able to write for them but i know that you will write in many other great places so i'm not worried about you jenny you're gonna be great uh what about you pal and what have you been doing with your freedom as it is oh my god it's been pretty great to be honest my husband's been out of town on a work conference thing so i've just had the house to myself and my cat and i've been going to the cinema alone which is the best way i think that i i mean i do like to go to the cinema with friends and whatever but it's always nice to just go in alone in the middle of the day and come out but other than that honestly i watched that architectural digest video of lily allen and david harbour's house in cobble hill or wherever the fuck they are in Mm. brooklyn that house is nice man the kitchen and the bathroom are really nice um i think you've seen some photos of it right what are your thoughts on it too just from the not from the video but yeah yeah i have seen some photos it's gorgeous honestly it's i don't know i'm looking at specifically their photos of this green sort of game room with these sort of storybook flower vines going up the wall it's so beautiful it's really pretty um i think there are some rooms in the house that i really don't like at all especially the bedroom (laughs) which is like the bed itself is like in a closet type thing essentially Uh, like a very large closet where there's no windows and apparently the whole point of that is because david harbour likes to sleep in bitch me too except i have depression and if i have that bed i will be suiciding the next week after that (laughs) like i need the sunlight i don't know how they do it it's very cursed um but the the kitchen is gorgeous like i really really love that like french Mm -hmm. european style old-timey italian almost like look um and the and the bathroom too it's really not my style like i'm not that of a decadent person i like my woods and my oaks as a classic like tourist yeah um but this yeah it's just it's really nice let's get into it what have you watched this week what do you want to talk about so this week i watched to leslie which is now out on vod and i think playing in a few select theaters mm. uh so this film if you're not aware it is a drama directed by michael morris written by ryan binaco it premiered last year at South by Southwest, had a very limited release, and mostly remained off people's radars until its lead, Andrea Riseborough, received an Oscar nomination for mm. Best Actress. 
this was an event that was surprising and even a little controversial. Mm -hmm. And we talked about it in last week's episode. If you want to sort of catch up on the the controversy behind this Oscar nomination and the campaign. Yeah. But I wanted to find out what the actual movie was like and what her performance was actually like. Uh, All that buzz sort of, sort of worked in, in some way. Yeah. yeah. Um, So this film is uh, again, Riseborough plays the lead. She plays Leslie, a woman uh, who's a single mother in Texas who spiraled into alcoholism after winning $190,000 in the lottery. Six years later, the money is all gone. Her son is uh, grown up and estranged from her. She's basically squandered every ounce of goodwill um, from among like her friends and her family. She is more or less homeless out on the streets and, she finally gets one more chance after like many, many failed chances in her life to potentially turn things around. All right. I guess I'm just going to start out by putting this out there. Andrew Riseborough is really amazing in this. Told you. I told you this last week. Like she's honestly so slept on. She, I also recently saw her in a film called Nancy. uh, And that's, like no no one ever saw that film either really um so she has a knack for picking a lot of like low radar roles independent films so it's not a surprise that she isn't like a mainstream person yeah. that everybody knows of yeah yeah well i do think this will probably has put her on the map for a lot of people yeah. um in terms of her portrayal of this character of leslie she really nails like embodying leslie as like a full fleshed out three-dimensional person and character like it's not just fully like oh leslie is sort of terrible person and and manipulative and and Mm -hmm. dangerous it's also that leslie can be so magnetic and charming even um and you can imagine a different time when she was like full of life and the life of the party and just like every single side of that and her strength and her vulnerability all that wrapped into one package which is yeah in a, but also in a way that doesn't seem like uh, too forced in terms of like you know, milking it for the Oscar campaign or for this would yeah. be like the the prestige performance or something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, as for the film itself, it's kind of hard to watch. I think, especially in the first half, when it's mm. you know purposely made to be her hitting rock bottom and then hitting even further rock bottom and then even further rock bottom. Did you have a good time watching that, you know, first spell of the film? Um, well, I mean, how I felt, no. <laughs> like, yeah, it's not, I don't think it's meant to elicit any good feelings no, at all, to be no. honest. Um, it's funny, the, the first opening scene is, like, the cold open of the film is her, the video of her, um, the news report of her winning the lottery. And yeah. that's when you get to see her straight away. And it's funny seeing someone written to be so joyous. And the way that she kind of trips over herself when she's talking to showcase how happy she is and then to cut from that to where she is that's like the whiplash that they were aiming for essentially um yeah but that journey between where she is and then where she goes uh to her son's house like to her son's town where he is um that journey and like her settling in and everything it was it was very painful um for both of them, you can kind of see how you feel shame on her behalf. Yeah. Um, and then you feel a deep sense of shame for him too. Like it's, it's pretty good how they made that 
to be the first thing that you see or like the first few scenes or like yeah. the, the first few occurrences of a film actually because something like that would usually happen midway so it was nice to see it up top yeah yeah i think the the, the scenes with her and her son are very very strong and yeah. do a great job sort of setting the tone i think they even they might be in my opinion some of the strongest parts of the film actually um compared yeah. to some of what comes afterward I, I saw some reviews. I was like reading through Rotten Tomatoes. Um, there's one review that sort of criticized this film or was like not as um, maybe slightly more critical. It, it said this film is basically like wallowing in white trash misery, um, which, you know, perhaps, mm. but do you think it ever crossed the line into what some people might call trauma porn or poverty porn or anything like that for you? Like, some some film like hillbilly elegy or something might be i don't think so it's always hard to figure out a way to showcase people that are not doing so well in life Mm -hmm. whether it's financially mentally whatever it might be and also make them feel dignified through cinema when the whole point of her character is that she's kind of lost her idea of what dignity means because of her addiction so it's it's par for the course for this in terms of like, is it, you know, poverty porn? I I think that's a crude way of saying something that happens to a lot of people all the time. I think this film as a whole uh, still gave Leslie as a character dignity. So it didn't feel like it too much. Uh, There was a moment in the film where you worry that she's going to be attacked, for example, and it doesn't happen. Uh, mm-hmm. which I thought was a good choice because it yeah. showed it showed her agency in it in a way that felt a little bit more dignified. Um, obviously, most of the time people don't have the choice of having that agency, like especially if they're, you know, you can't get, you can't really work your way against violence if it's coming your way. But in this instance, the choice that the filmmakers made was that that's not what she wanted to give herself into. Um, so I didn't think it was ultimately i didn't think it was like poverty porn at all yeah Um, i think it made some of the hard decisions to keep continually pushing her to this like rock bottom but it didn't take some of the even i guess like cheaper or easier choices to like intensify that um like you said yeah through like violence through through sexual violence um or like explicit portrayals of that or anything uh along those lines it did push her down um and showed how she is down and like in some cases keeps herself down but it doesn't necessarily take those other shortcuts that it could yeah. have so that is maybe um what helps it a lot in terms of preserving the quote-unquote dignity of the character definitely i want to i want to talk to you a little bit about the choice uh that the writers made for the amount of money that she received um 190 000. it is not a lot of money bruv um no, not not especially and, if for like a lottery sort of winning yeah you know you know the whole thing in succession where they're talking to greg about like five million dollars being nothing yes yeah they're like that's the worst kind of you know amount of money to have yeah um this is kind of what that felt like where it's like it's enough you can do something with it but it runs out very quickly um yeah so it was interesting because i think the whole point of 
the you know her downfall or the beginning of her downfall is that she squandered that money all away but it's like what could she have done really to have ultimately changed her life if she had this addiction and I think that's the part that elicited a lot of empathy for me from for her because like you know obviously on top of the fact that she has alcoholism and that's a disease and I fully empathize with that completely even if she didn't have that addiction and she squandered it some other way I feel like we could all kind of understand that and how that might have happened so I thought it was a smart choice to have it be just enough money but not too much um yeah like it's pivotal like maybe in some ways yeah yeah it's enough for I think she used it on a down payment for a house and then the rest sort of you know it's implied that she sort of went drinking a lot went partying Mm -hmm. she like you know bought the whole bar drinks and yeah um but eventually the money runs out actually very quickly yeah. especially if you are spending yeah. like that you have spent it on down payment um yeah. yeah i thought that that was a good amount it was enough to be like almost legendary in this small texas town exactly but also yeah yeah to not really last that long and then i thought the way that yeah. you know placing her back in this town where people are familiar with her and her story mm-hmm. and are so contemptuous and kind of cruel about it like she wasted all that money like you had that money yeah it's it's part of like jealousy that she had this money that she had this chance but also like in resentment and then like the disbelief like you you have the chance to get out of here like some of us never would and you didn't do it and the way that it was so cruel at times that felt so personal and it's, it's like deeply american too just like the rise and the fall narrative that they are so obsessed with. I mean, everyone is all around the world. I think that's the issue as human beings. But just the fact that, you know, she had the success story and then she had a a failure is fascinating to everyone. Like the repetition of, I I liked how every now and again, like every 10 to 15 minutes, someone would be like, isn't that the woman who, like it keeps coming up, you know, which is very accurate. That's usually how it goes. Um, Yeah. 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 I I did find some of the the story and the characters to be underdeveloped. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, like yeah, for example, who exactly are Nancy and Dutch? Like, what is their relationship to Leslie? Why do we only find out like pretty close to the end exactly how Nancy fit into her life and where Nancy's sort of uh, animosity is coming from? Yeah, that felt like a big missed opportunity in terms of the writing and also, you know, using Alice and Janney. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, you've got Alice and Janney and Stephen Root, who mm-hmm. everybody adores. Like, we all love them. We know their faces. Do you know how rare it is to find Alice and Janney playing, like, the role of the villain? Like, <laughs> use it. It's She's so good at it. Um, mm. I totally agree with you. I, I even think that, like, but I, I guess maybe this is because I enjoyed the scene so much with her son. It's just, like... Oh, me too. I just, I, I just wish, yeah, I wish we saw more of him. I've never seen Owen Teague before, but I think just the the way that him and Andrea Riseborough like play off of each other is is kind of nuts. Like it's just you very rarely get that kind of chemistry. Um, mm-hmm. Really great. Yeah, I totally agree with you. There, there's a lot that we don't see, and I don't know whether that was a choice because like we're just trying to see it through the perspective of Leslie, who is trying to shield herself from all of this but um context would have been nice man i don't know just more yeah Yeah. i also i'm curious what your thoughts are about mark maron's character sweeney who is yeah of course this like very uh magnanimous motel manager who offers leslie a job 
and the chance to turn her life around when yeah. no one else in this town will. Basically, yeah. like a, a savior, kind of, and even yeah. we find out later, a romantic savior, which... Yeah, I didn't really get I don't know how first. I feel about that. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Um, I mean, age mates-wise, it makes sense. But um, yeah, he, he kind of plays a role of like William Defoe in The Florida Project. You know, just the mm. guy that works at the motel that helps uh, that helps our uh, protagonist out. Um, I wasn't really feeling him that much. Uh, yeah, I think... I, I agree with that. I think tonally it felt a little bit off. Um yeah, it was a, yeah, that that part didn't really do it for me. What about you? I have to totally agree with you. Um I think I, I like Mark Marin generally. Like I like yeah, to totally. glow, glow especially, yeah. but he just wasn't very convincing to me here. Um I really didn't like the romantic turn and like I know, I know. Of course maybe this character he he's still a nice guy, I think, for helping someone out, but this the sense that almost corrupts that it does. idea of him being truly yeah. like a nice um guy. Like all along he he actually was like kind of digging leslie and that's you know could, could that have been a, a reason why he helped her i don't want to think that but that's what the film like sort of leaves us with well yeah i i didn't really like it um either it felt too easy um and but way like, easy yeah but like saying that i think this film in general is like too easy i think it's just such a Tr- like it, it's a narrative that we've seen before it's a yes. narrative that we're familiar with it's that there's there's we've seen different versions of this whether it's through someone's kid having an addiction like people love addiction stories like there's a reason why zendaya has gotten so many accolades uh for euphoria and uh-huh. it's because it's like you know in this teen this controversial teen show with like a lot of like stylized shooting and everything but ultimately that whole arc of her character like Rue's character could you can swap her out for a film like this um and yeah. and have a make a film of her uh very much like this so yeah i yeah. agree that this is a very like um familiar sort of narrative mm-hmm. yeah and yeah. it is not really bringing necessarily anything very new or or like fresh to that narrative yeah. to that angle that we've seen a lot of times uh, yeah. That's not to say I wasn't ultimately still kind of touched and a little emotional with the reunion of Leslie and yeah. her son at the end and how yeah. Leslie like pulled it off. But it it follows those like well-worn grooves. It provides a resolution that feels a little bit too, yeah, a little bit too easy after all the, the pain yeah, and yeah. suffering that she's gone through. Like we don't even see her put in the work on her diner by the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, really, Andrea Riseborough is, if there is one, like, exceptional thing about this film, it is it is her and her performance. What would your, um, what would your order be at Lee's Diner? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the fuck kind of food they serve. Like, at least show Just us something it, about the diner and, like, what they're doing there, man. But, it looks like, it feels like a set. I mean, it makes sense. Like, I think a lot of those buildings in those towns really do look like a very, tiny like, little toy. Thing. Yeah, look, they look like a Sims building for the most yeah. part. That but I guess, case. like... Lee's Diner, just just get me a nice a nice omelet and some hash browns and, and yeah. I'll be good. Yeah, omelets, <laughs> hash browns with a side of sausages, maybe some blueberry pancakes. Um, <laughs> sure. Thank you, Leslie. All right, Pellin, what did you watch this week? So, upon recommendation from a couple of my friends, I ended up watching a show called Paul T. Goldman, which you can find on Peacock, which is 
Peacock is having a good couple of weeks uh, yeah. with like, Poker Face and this. Hmm, interesting. Um, so this was not on my radar at all until I started to get the recommendations, but it is a six-episode limited series that's directed by Jason Walliner, who also directed the Borat subsequent movie film, and is produced by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. So this tells a story of Paul Finkelman, a.k.a. Paul T. Goldman, which is his alias, he is a man who ended up marrying a woman who, like back in 2006 or seven, who scammed him out of his money at some point and sparked his decades long sleuthing journey, essentially. So Paul Finkelman, he reached out to Jason Walliner and like a bunch of other directors to see if he would like to use his screenplay, which was adapted from his book that he'd written about this saga. And Jason Walliner agreed only if he could do it his way. And his way is. I, I guess you could call it like a docu-comedy. I think it's more of akin to like a true crime documentary satire that includes dramatic reenactments of the screenplay that this guy had written. So it's, sounds very convoluted i just implore you to watch the first episode and you'll understand what i mean um it's essentially like a fourth wall break that's so aggressive that we are basically standing on a stage with no roof and no walls that's just the best way that i can describe it Mm -hmm. um jenny you started watching this recently um how far are you into it what are your thoughts so far (laughs) so i actually finished it all uh expressly for the purpose of being able to talk about it in full with (laughs) nice it's it's nuts. I went into this um, not knowing anything. I didn't really look up any information about this beforehand. Excellent. I Me had neither. No idea. Yeah. Uh, and then the first, you know, episode passed by. I'm like uh, raised a few eyebrows, but you know, okay, seems like a seems like a documentary, like a some kind of like true crime documentary. But then you keep going, and then more and more eyebrows get raised, yes. and then it's like, oh shit, this is what it's going to be about. Yes, it is wild, and I. I know we're about to like talk about this uh, in some level of detail. If you need convincing, keep listening. If you like the sound of this, what we've said so far, stop listening, go watch it. Um, I I really think it's a load of fun when you know nothing about it going in. Yeah. Um, but essentially, it's it kind of falls into the category, I guess, of like Nathan for you and the rehearsal, where you're kind uh-huh. of constantly suspending both disbelief and belief at the same time. It's very quick. It's very delightful. It's like half hour episodes. I think there's six episodes. So it clocks in at around, I would say like three, three and a half hours almost, um, which is, I think, why we both crushed it pretty quickly. Um, so it is a fast watch. Um, what did you like about this? <laughs> what made it enjoyable the layers, to you? Man. Yeah, yeah, the layers. I mean, yeah. again, like, you start out thinking it's one thing, it turns out to be another. You start out thinking one thing about this guy, Paul, mm-hmm. and then the way that the documentary manipulates your impression of him throughout the whole thing yeah. is so impressive. Yeah. Like, you feel, okay, oh, I'm sorry for this guy, and then you feel, okay, this guy is off his rocker and then you feel okay well i feel a little bad for him now and then you go back to okay no he's fully like uh, almost like a QAnon, like crazy sort of dude and then it leaves you with this other lingering impression of him so i thought that the way that you know the, the how the documentary went together like just everything about how it was put together 
it was so skillful yeah. in terms of just purely emotional manipulation. Yeah, I mean, there's been, as we know, any, as anybody knows, true crime documentaries have had a real moment in the last couple of years. I think they're waning right now, or at least they're going to like live action stuff. So th- there's a lot of like narrative versions of true crime stuff still happening. Um, I'm personally exasperated by it. I think we've talked about it where we're a little bit tired of it too. The way that this show basically takes the piss out of that format, just the true crime documentary, like 10 episode format is one thing to do it through the lens of this guy who, you know, the thing that we talked a lot about the rehearsal is like, where do they find these people? Um, And, I think with Nathan Fielder, he seeks them out. Whereas with this, this guy was the one that found the director. Yeah. And like, which like right off the bat, that tells you something about this guy. Yes. He wanted to be found. He, he wanted this whole thing to happen for him. So, you know, from the, I think even from the first episode, just the way that the confessional is set up for him, the way that he is, the way that he acts, you're a little bit like, oh no, this guy's really a cringe. A little bit like, mm, this guy's a little... Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. But not like to the level where you're like, y- you don't know quite yet the, the, the depth extent of, of it, his... Yeah. Yes. And then like you said, slowly we peel back the layers and then like we get to the point you know, even from the first episode, we understand that he's going to tell this story to anyone that's willing to listen. Um, you know, he believes that it's the most remarkable thing ever. And he's honestly, like, as far as, like, unreliable narrators go, I think his face can kind of go under the dictionary definition. Because as each yeah. episode, it's kind of like... I wouldn't say Shutter Island. I think that's really that's a really harsh way of putting it. But just the fact that they are entertaining this for him allows for this person to expose more and more of himself in a way that we get to see clearly exactly the type of person that he is, both good and bad, you know? And, like, initially you just think he's totally harmless and then you realize, like, how his harmlessness is actually pretty... Pretty harmful. Pretty harmful, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so... You know, there is, like, this palpable, very childish naivety that Finkelman holds that, like, to me, it reminded me a lot of, like, a Coen Brothers movie or a character. Like, ultimately, you understand that he doesn't really have, like, an evil or necessarily, like, intentionally bad bone in his body. But there are several points in the series where you kind of see how deeply misogynistic he is and how much of, like, I guess, like, the incel energy is very... uh, it, it it creeps up on you, but then once it's there, you can't ever unsee it. Yeah, um, I would say he's he's probably a little evil. Maybe not, yeah, again, true. like, yeah. intentionally, yeah. like you said, but yeah. there is something very dark about it's him and so the da- way yeah. that he is blinkered yeah. to his own sort of evilness, in a sense. Yeah, totally. Like, it just manifests in a really, like, bubble-wrapped exterior that yeah. makes you makes you not feel like you're being poked by it but you are mm-hmm. like by the by the end of it you realize like how far it goes but just like you know like the ease in which he was duped by this woman um yeah. and i say that as like he just believed that he could marry a woman um and just have a forever wife after after like, after three months yeah yeah like three months um and just easily believing that um and then obviously his disbelief at being scammed, which then turns into like a very elaborate self-victimizing narrative 
again that he's willing to tell anybody that's willing like that will listen writes a book about it that's self-published by the way um and like even how he navigates the show itself is like the part that i at several points just laughed out loud just because i couldn't believe that it was happening he truly believes that he deserves all of it you know like he's truly like finally like jesus like we're getting to the point where people understand that this is nuts he keeps repeating that it's true, it's true, it's true. All of this is true. He was working himself towards this day, you know? And I think Walliner's genius as a director and a producer of this is that he is giving that guy, you know, the guy that literally has, like, I know we talk about main character syndrome, but this guy has it, like, it is main character syndrome to the nth degree. He finally gives that guy a platform where he gets to be the main character. And then, like, what happens then? What do we do? when we're faced with essentially a narcissist who believes that because of his own idiocy and his ability to quote unquote, like spin it into something more that he deserves an Oscar or an Emmy for whatever it is that he's doing. Because in these reenactments, he is also playing himself and it's something that he chose to do, which I found fascinating. And like, that was honestly my favorite part about it was just watching him try and act in front of very, very capable actors you know, solid, recognizable TV actors of our time, which I think was the part where I was like, holy shit, how did they get these people? Why did they say yes? I think Vulture wrote an article where they interviewed a couple of them to kind of talk about their experience, which was really fascinating, honestly. Everyone was like very graceful about the whole thing. Um, yeah. What, what was your favorite performance? Well, I think it's it's like, there's different levels to that, right? You have the performance of the actor as the character that they're playing in Paul's world, but then you also have what the actor is doing in Walliner's production. Um, yeah. And yeah, the degree yeah. to which, like, that second one, how much of that is played up for the camera, how much of that is just yeah. their genuine shock and reaction. That's that's yeah. sort of, like, the interesting sort of interplay uh, between these different yeah productions that they're in at the, simultaneously. Uh, I mean, Christopher Stanley was giving a lot of great uh, raised eyebrows and, and stuff yes. to the camera behind the scenes. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, that's a part of it is like you're trying to think of what is going through the minds of these actors when they are faced with this man, like with with Finkelman, where you're just like, what do they regret this? Like, are they thinking what the fuck is going on or are they just keeping it super professional and trying to figure out like if this is maybe something that happens all the time with other different types of actors. But I think Josh Pace is probably my favorite. He was the, um, did he play the Paul-like author within the, within the production, within the production? Yes. So as the series goes on, you find out that Finkelman had written a whole cinematic universe about this world and they start doing scenes from it so this guy plays the guy that wrote the book that's apparently based on paul t goldman but not it's not exactly him he's playing a different person that's kind of like him so then he josh pace ends up doing an impression essentially of finkelman and it is the funniest fucking shit ever because we've been watching him this whole time with his mannerisms it's so good I also really liked um, just seeing the different types of like actor personalities. Like Frank Grio is hot as fuck. Don't get me wrong, but he's clearly like the guy that knows he's hot. Um, but watching him like doing boxing things between takes cracked me up so much. And like the way that they, him and Finkelman, are talking about like their dating lives and how different it is for the both of them. It's really funny. Um, 
just genuinely incredible moments that I can't believe they captured on tape. Yeah, honestly. I'm really like, this is kind of a once in a lifetime find for Wallner, I think, like to find this person with this level yeah. of self delusion, but also this yeah. kind of gameness of spirit. Like a lot of other people, even if they're, they're this deluded, as soon as they found out, okay, this production is actually maybe not what I thought it was, or they're like poking yeah. into the truth, they would have been off. They would have been yeah. Um, yeah. cursing him out, running away. But this guy has that perfect combination of delusion naivete like all of it to last throughout this even with the knowledge that mm, something is maybe not going quite the way i thought it would but he's he's too busy enjoying this star making performance and experience in a way so that's that's sort of some of the genius i think walliner is like well aware of his own yeah exploitation of this guy in a sense um and he's like totally he has complicated feelings about the ethics about it but ultimately he he kind of charges ahead and um, I mean, we as the audience are just kind of left with the question of like, well, how ethical was it to use this guy? But also like, yeah, yeah fuck this maybe, guy at the same time. Yeah, maybe fuck this guy <laughs> yeah. at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> um, I totally agree. I think he definitely knew he had something on his hands. Like they started talking at, in 2012. So this has been yeah. like a long journey. And it's funny because I think Finkelman also kind of, knows and has like a certain amount of self-awareness of how he comes off to other people but he just like is i think so desperate um for his life to amount to more because there are scenes where he is still working his day job yeah um as just like a customer like an insurance company customer services person and like that's fascinating and just seeing that like the monotony of his life on a day-to-day you kind of understand why he desperately needs this so yeah. it's, it, it all works together really well where there's like a, a, a level of empathy, a level of understanding of who he is, but at the same time, like critiquing him all at the same time, like we get all of it. Yeah, I mean, I definitely felt y- you can't help but feel sorry for this guy at times. Like that is what those scenes are designed to do, to, to make you feel sympathy and pity mostly that this guy is apparently, you know, he his childhood was maybe not the greatest, like withholding sort of father grew up and not very remarkable, monotonous life, doesn't have a lot of relationships or, you know, there are a lot of things that have turned out not that great in this guy's life. And so, yeah, yeah, you feel pity for him, but then mix in that with a pity and just like the next episode or the next half of the episode is like, okay, he's a real scumbag. Um, Yeah. Still like that's, it's a very complicated sort of uh, mix of emotions about this guy. It's yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't know if he knows that what he's doing or what he's saying or the way that he's acting or his approach to women specifically. I don't know if he understands truly how vile it is. Honestly, like he might consider it to be harmless because it's just things that he was trying to do. Like the intention was pure, but it doesn't matter. Like to me, it, to some point, like it kind of doesn't matter because yeah. that's that's the whole fucking issue with you know toxic masculinity. Is it doesn't have to worry about that type of stuff. And yeah, we as women like understand what it is clearly, and it's still unacceptable. Like it's unacceptable that he hounded this woman uh, for for decades, and like for what? <laughs> it's just it's just it's it's fascinating. I think. You know, we spend like five episodes essentially like building up to the finale. And I think what I was worried about by, I think, episode four or five was like, are they going to be able to like pull this off? Like, are they going to be able to stick the landing? Because it still feels like there's a level of 
um, questions that not going unanswered, but like thematically, like where are we going to land on this guy? And like, how do we feel about him? And are the film like does want to know and understand it? Like, I'm not sure it went as far as I wanted it to in terms of that analysis of him. But then again, I don't think it's necessary to spell it out. We spend like six episodes essentially understanding exactly the type of person that he is. As an aside, the way that true crime documentary filmmaking and the people that are into this and the people that sleuth for the sake of sleuthing, there's a level of delusion there too. It's not just strictly Finkelman. He's just a product of it. It's just that, you know, it's very specific to him because it happened to him. I think the reveal at the end kind of just sealed it for me, personally speaking, as to like the type of person that he is. Um, So I think it did stick the landing and it did try to say something like emotionally trying to analyze him a little bit, which I understand and and I, I get why they did it. It was kind. Of, it kind of felt like the mission statement for Walliner as to why he went ahead and did it with this guy. Um, but yeah, I I don't know if it quite got there. I I, I do in general feel like a, it was a complete season, um, and that last episode did complete it for me. How did you feel about the finale? What was going through your mind? Yeah, I mean the finale. It really sort of cements this statement more or less that the the documentary has been pushing towards, which is that you know sort of the reason why. Paul had to do all of this is because there was something in his life that deprived him of feel being able to feel like a complete man and a complete quote unquote warrior. Yeah. And so yeah. it's like from whim to warrior. That's basically the uh, psychological analysis of Paul um, by the yeah. end. And yeah. it's a little bit, it is a little bit too neat. It's a little bit too pat. Um, yeah. But I agree. So I agree that it was like, it was just sort of like the the motion of wrapping everything up in a bow neatly mm-hmm. for the end. But yeah, I yeah. also agree that, you know, the the series as a whole shows of us like enough of this guy, I think, that we can draw our own conclusions about it. Yeah. Um, so maybe it like does so- settle for a more simplified version. But at the same time, a lot of this stuff is there. You can sort of draw your own conclusions about this guy from everything that we've seen. And yeah, totally. Uh, totally. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it, it sort of, it pulled it off, I think, uh, even if not in the most satisfactory way, at least the way all the episodes when um, there is like meat there and there is like a lot of yeah. fascinating stuff there. Yeah, it's it's funny. I think he can kind of die feeling like he did something with his life with this show. Like it was a fantastic thing that happened to him. Whether or not he thinks that he deserves more now from this point on, which I, I'm assuming he does, is another thing. Um yeah, it's it's fascinating. I, I don't think this necessarily took him the way I see him uh, from wimp to warrior. I think it took him from wimp to someone that's just better known. So for Culture Notes this week, uh, we are going to check in with uh, one of the boyfriends of the pod, uh, Pedro Pascal. We have several of them. Uh, you'll know who they are when we announce that they are the boyfriend of the pod. Obviously, Pedro Pascal long been in my heart since the game of throne days when we first saw him for a lot of us um but he is back in the conversation after shortly leaving it for the mandalorian um he is back in obviously for the last of us which is the new hit show on hbo uh we will be talking about the last of us eventually so if you guys are watching uh keep watching and if you haven't stop because then you'll really enjoy the podcast when we talk about it um 
So everyone's talking about Pedro Pascal. I think that he's always been thirsted after because he's a part of like the three daddy circle of like Diego Luna and Oscar Isaac and him. Um, there are very many photos of Oscar Isaac and him together as just like our TV boyfriends. But he recently hosted SNL. Did you watch his monologue? Yeah, I watched the monologue. I saw a few clips of some of the sketches on TikTok because they are floating around, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm happy for him. I, again, like he has been an internet boyfriend for a long time, but it comes in waves, which is interesting with each, you know, uh, release with each franchise. Game yeah. of Thrones, like we said, Mandalorian, the moment he took off the helmet, you know, there it is again, the bump. And then now it's, it's back and bigger than ever. He is really just beloved and there is a whole new level of like um fandom around him like if you've seen there are like so many edits fan cams of this guy which they sort of poked fun at and on snl as well and it's i don't know i i love it i love i love pedro pascal he seems like a sweetie and he seems uh, very fun and also he is hot and amazing so there we go he is so hot and amazing um it's funny when you think of also his uh, film work, he kind of he has a lot of fun with it too, where he's able to do the serious macho guy, because I think he was in Triple Frontier for that, for example. Mm-hmm. But he's also down to do a little bit more like funny or off kilter roles. Um, Wonder Woman 1984, if you ever saw that, he was very funny in that. I don't think it was intentional, but he definitely. <laughs> went all out with that performance um so he has fun like you can clearly tell that he's just here for a for a good time and like trying to keep it professional i never saw him in narcos because i think i dropped off of narcos after season one mm-hmm. um but he was obviously in that too um yeah we wish him nothing but the rest this is great um we hope that the last of us even takes him further into the stratosphere he's really great in it i love seeing him with gray hair in that but we, we'll get into that more in in the podcast. But yeah, he's really sweet. He's obviously someone that is just having fun. So that is it for us this week. If you are watching anything that we should check out, as always, let us know. Criticismisdead at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram, criticismisdead. For extended show notes, which includes everything we've been talking about, uh, additional links, maybe some more, check out our newsletter, criticismisdead.substack.com. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or other podcast platforms of choice. Five stars only, please. Uh, tell a friend about us. Yes. Post about us on social media. Uh, send us job leads or other opportunities that you come across that might be good. Um, yeah. Or offers to acquire this podcast and, you know, have us in your employee. Whatever. Um, yeah. You know where to find us. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, we will see you next week. Bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelling Heskin Lu and Jenny Jishan. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Lu.